The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're looking at the Lord's high priestly prayer that's found in John 17. Now this is the final chapter of the Upper Room Discourse where the Lord is preparing His disciples for His departure. This is happening on the very last night of His life. Chapter 13-17 through 17 all take place in the final hours before His crucifixion. He's been teaching them <clears throat> through these past four chapters. And now in 17, He stops teaching and He prays for them. This prayer divides itself into three simple sections. The first five verses... Yeshua is praying for Himself. He's praying that He would be glorified through the cross, and that in turn He would glorify the Father. The theme of glory dominates those first five verses. Then in verses 6-19, through He prays for the disciples, that they would be kept, they would be set apart from the world. The theme there is kept. We're going to look at that this morning. And then in verses 20-26, through He prays for future believers. Guess who that includes? Us that we would be unified so that the world would believe that the Father has sent Yeshua. The theme there is unity. Now this prayer of Yeshua to the Father pulls together many important themes from Yeshua's teaching. And we'll see that this morning as He goes over many of the themes He's already taught them, He's talked about, now He's praying for them. So far we looked at the first ten verses of this prayer. And we saw last week in verses 6-10 through that our Lord dealt with the fact that he had, he had accomplished what He came to do. And so He's now ready to return to the Father. In verses 11-19, through 19, our Lord prays for His disciples in light of the fact that He is leaving them. As we study these verses, we must always keep in mind audience relevance. All right, that's an important principle of hermeneutics. Who is He speaking to when He speaks? How do these verses apply to us? How do they, first of all, apply to the original audience? The Lord is praying specifically for His disciples whom He is about to leave and they are to carry on the ministry of the Gospel. They need to carry on that. Now look at verse 20. He says, I don't ask for these only. That's referring to the disciples. His disciples that are there with Him but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. That's us. We believe through the words of the apostles. Alright? So this is specifically talking to His present disciples. He's praying specifically for them. Now with that in mind, let's look at this prayer. He says in verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now the context here is that the disciples are still going to be in the world after Yeshua leaves them to go to the Father. He's leaving them behind, basically. He says, I'm no longer in the world. Now, if you compare this with verse 13, where he says, these things I speak in the world. Sounds like there's a contradiction there. Wait, I'm I'm no longer in the world, but I speak these things in the world. Well, the key to the apparent contradiction is that in both these verses, Yeshua says, I'm coming to you. 
His departure from the world is so near, it's just hours away, the crucifixion, that He speaks in verse 11 as if He's already left the world. Now, some ancient manuscripts add here, I am no longer in the world, yet I'm in the world. Now, that seems to unite verse 11 and 13 and express that Yeshua is in a state of transition. Whether that's an original text, I don't know. Some manuscripts have it. Like I said, it's not that big a deal there. He goes on to say, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. So the Lord's leaving the world to return to the Father, but the disciples are going to remain in the world, which is very hostile to them. Very soon, they'll no longer have the Son's encouraging presence with them. They're going to be alone. They're going to be dealing with the hostile world on their own. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Now, <clears throat> I want to bring out some textual discrepancies here that I think are important. Some of the manuscripts vary here. I want you to notice how the King James puts this. King James says, Keep them, keep through thine own name those whom you, has, you have given me. So do you see a difference there? Let me try to make it a little easier here. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. King James says, keep through thine own name those whom you have given me. So the ESV, the name of God is given to Yeshua. With the KJV, the name of God preserves those whom God has given him. Okay, there's a difference there. Well, let's look at verse 12 because there's a problem here too. He says, I've kept them in your name which you have given me. The King James reads, I have kept them in thy name those thou hast given me. So again, the ESV, I've kept them in your name which you have given me. In other words, you've given me your name. KJV, I've kept them in your name those that you have given me. So with the ESV, the name of God is given to Yeshua. With the KJV, it has to do with the preservation of the given. So which one's right? Well, a significant combination of early manuscripts have which you have given me, but other early manuscripts and related later witnesses have those whom you have given me. So the manuscript evidence really doesn't help us much here because it's divided. And the scholars don't help us much either here either because they're kind of divided. They're both pretty evenly divided on this issue. Now, I'm going with the King James Version here. Because I think the context leans more towards him talking about the given than the name. If we take the KJV as correct, that means, and here's why I want to lean this direction, that means that seven times in this prayer, Yeshua prays for those the Father has given him. Now, is that significant? Number seven mean anything? Okay, it's, it's a well-established fact that seven in Scripture is the number of divine, you know, it's a number of divinity. It's a number of spiritual completion. It's a number of perfection. So here's a prayer. Now, this idea of the Son being given to certain people by the Father is all through this Gospel. We've talked about it many times. So it makes sense that here Yeshua would pray and focus on the given in this prayer and use it seven times. We know it's there five times. There's no question about the five times that the given are referred to, that He's praying for the given. Alright, that in mind, that's how I'm leaning here. Let's go back to 11 and kind of take this verse apart. Alright, 
He says, he calls God Holy Father. This appears only here in the fourth gospel. This is the only time Yeshua uses this title. Holy points to God's separateness. It points from His separation from sin, His otherness. Father points to His paternity, which gives us the idea of His approachability, His nearness. He is the Holy Father. Now, with Yeshua using this name for His, for his Father, does it seem wrong to you that the Catholic Church calls the Pope Holy Father? Does that not seem a little bit, what's the deal there? Does, does the Pope deserve to be called Holy Father? Well, the Catholic Church answers that question by saying this. Since we are His people, <clears throat> and His people are the Church, it is fitting that the head of His holy people be called Holy Father. Not because of His own merit, but because Christ died for Him and for the Church that He leads on earth. Well, my question is this. Who made the Pope head of the Church? The last time I read the Bible, it says that Christ is the chief shepherd. He's the head. The Pope's not any head. He's not the one who leads the church on earth. If he leads them anyway, I think he's leading them astray. All right? So, I just, you know, it's, it's got to bother us. You know, when Yeshua says, call no man father. And what do they call their priest? Father. No, I don't... Okay, let's stop picking on the Catholics and move on. All right. He says, keep them in your name. Now, this phrase could mean... Keep them by the power of your name, or the preposition N there is locative instead of instrumental in mood, and it would mean keep them loyal to your name. So it could be either one of these. Some people say it's both. I think the context favors the second view. Loyalty seems to be the objective of keeping them. That's kind of the dominant idea here. Lord, I'm praying that you would keep them loyal. It doesn't mean, you know, keep them under the Father, keep them by the Father's power. That's what's going to keep them. Now, the Greek word Yeshua here, or the Greek word that Yeshua uses here, terao, is the same word repeatedly used for keeping his word. All right? Now, knowing the temptations the disciples are about to face in his absence, he prays that they will remain loyal to him in the midst of the trials, in the midst of temptation. He's trying to protect this group. He's praying that they will preserve in their faith. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that the Father answered the prayers of the Son? I mean, if anybody got their prayers answered, you think it might have been Yeshua? Alright? If He prayed that the Father would keep the given, guess what? The given are kept. They're absolutely kept. And listen, that's what Calvinists call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. All right? Now, we went over this recently, the tulip, one of the five points of Calvinism. We went over this a couple weeks ago, so hopefully it's fresh in your mind. The acronym tulip is used for the five points. All right? The T stands for total depravity. The U, Unconditional election. Right? Total depravity, it doesn't mean man's as bad as he can be. It means all men are depraved. They're separated from God by their sin. Unconditional election means that God chose you not because of anything He saw in you. It's because of who He is. Limited atonement means the atonement is limited for the people He died for. The given in this text, alright? Irresistible grace means when God calls, 
You come. Why? Because He changes your heart. Jeremiah, that was the promise of the new covenant. I'll take out your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. And the last one, perseverance of the saints. All right? Now, when someone says they believe in the perseverance of the saints, you have to find out what they mean by that. Okay? Because this doctrine is interpreted in two different ways. <clears throat> View number one. A true Christian will never fall away, but will live a life of holiness and obedience. They will always persevere in holiness. They will always live a holy life. Shaking your head. Yeah, I'm done. A lot of us are done, right? Okay, because how about Peter? How do you think Peter felt when he denied the Lord three times? Well, I'm not persevering too much here. All right, the second view, which I hold, no one whom God has brought to a saving knowledge of Yeshua will ever be lost. All right? They'll never be lost. When I use the term perseverance of the saints, I'm speaking about what most would call eternal security. Spurgeon used to say this. It's not so much the perseverance of the saints that is prominent as it is the preservation of the saints by God. So what do you feel more comfortable, keeping yourself secure or having God keep you secure? All right, yeah, I'm going to lean towards God, all right? Because I'm going to mess up every time, all right? And here's the problem here. The majority of the church, the majority of churchgoers today don't understand that our salvation is not based upon what we do. It's based on what Christ did for us. They think their relationship with God is based on their performance. And if you think that, you're always going to be miserable. They think as long as they live right, God will not condemn them. Well, that's a work system. To attempt to live the Christian life by works is to live under constant guilt and condemnation. But to understand that salvation is by grace through faith, and that we are absolutely secure because of Christ's work, will bring great peace to your soul. Let me tell you some people, security is vital to peace. All right? If you don't have any security, you don't have any peace because you're always worried, you know. Let it, maybe that's that way in your home. If your home is not secure and you feel we're going to be threatened, you know, we better put some bars on the window or something. If you don't have any security in your home, there's no peace. You're not sleeping too good at night. And the same thing is in your salvation. If you feel like it's my job to keep myself saved, there's no peace there, people. There's no peace at all. If you think a person can lose their salvation, then you don't understand salvation. And I don't mean to say that meanly. You certainly don't understand what we've studied so far in this fourth gospel. Yeshua makes it clear, and I'm sorry, we got visitors again. Yeshua, okay, is Jesus' Hebrew name. It's his name his mama called him. His mama never called him Jesus. You know why? There was no J in the Hebrew alphabet, okay? J didn't come around to the 17th century, all right? She called him Yeshua, all right? So that's why I use that, because Yeshua means Yahweh saves. What does the name Jesus mean? doesn't mean anything, okay? It's just the name. It's like our names. Our names don't mean anything. Hebrew names had significance, so that's why I do it. I'm not saying everybody should do it. That's my personal preference, okay? So just so everyone's clear on that, all right? <laughs> Yeshua makes it clear that salvation and the security of the sheep are not the result of the sheep's efforts, but rather the sovereign will and working of God. Look at what he said in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, the construction of the Greek clause here, they shall never perish, literally it reads, they will indeed not ever perish. It's an especially strengthened expression. You couldn't emphasize it more in the Greek if you tried. Yeshua had previously said that part of the task that the Father had given to him to do was to preserve those who the Father had given him, he said in 637-40. That was his job, to take care of the sheep. The next verse says, My Father who has given them to me, and there's this idea, people, all through the Gospel of John, there is a group of people that the Father has given to the Son. Those who He has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Son's keeping us. The Father's hanging on to us. Our salvation is dependent upon the choice of the Father in eternity past. He chose out of the mass of humanity a people to give to His Son. The only ones who believe in the Son are the ones the Father has given Him. The Son dies for the salvation of the sheep that the Father gave Him. And all the sheep that the Father has given to the Son will believe in the Son and be given eternal life. They will never perish. The elect sheep are kept safe in the hands of the Father and the Son. It is the sovereignty of God which assures our salvation. That's a secure salvation, people, because we don't play a part in it. And as long as you think you play a part in it, you're never going to have security. All right? No one overrules the will of God. No one overpowers Him. No one nullifies what He has achieved, and no one takes away those He has purchased. He's sovereign, and He's sovereign over salvation. And we're secure. Now, we, here's something that I think a lot of people don't get. We need to understand... Our salvation is based upon the act of one person. And that's not us. Okay? Please get that. The security of our salvation is not based on our acts. Just as we are all condemned by Adam's act, we are all made righteous by Christ's act. Look at Romans 5.19. This is one of my favorite verses. I love this verse. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. That's a bummer. Right? We're made sinners because of Adam's act. So, uh, other translations have even so, and that's the idea. Even so, by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now, Romans 5, 12-21 is a comparison of two men. Simple comparison. Adam and Christ. There are two men who each performed a single act that brought about a single result, and the result is experienced by every member of their respective races. The emphasis in this section is on how one man's act affects all he represents. The word made here is not causative, it's declarative. Those in Adam were declared sinners. It's imperative that you understand this. By one man's disobedience, many were regarded as sinners. He doesn't say made sinful, but made sinners. The whole human race has been constituted legally as sinners because we were all in Adam. That's our judicial standing before God. And it's based entirely and solely on Adam's one act of disobedience. You're born a sinner because of what your father did, Adam. That's the one side. That's not the really good side. But thank God there is another side. There's a parallel. Two men, okay? So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
by the righteous act of one man, the Lord Yeshua the Christ, the many are made righteous. See, our salvation is based entirely on Him and what He did. As my being a sinner came entirely from Adam, all my righteousness comes entirely from the Lord Yeshua. By His obedience, I'm righteous. Man, let me tell you, that is an iron-clad righteousness, okay? He was regarded, Yeshua was regarded and treated as a sinner, so we might be regarded and treated as righteous in the sight of God. As a believer, I'm righteous. Alright, let me say something that shocks people. I'm as righteous as Yeshua is righteous. People say, how can you say that? If you can't say that, you're damned. Because His is the only righteousness God accepts. And I'm righteous because I am in Him. I share His righteousness. He took my sin. He gave me His righteousness. And listen, because I'm in Christ, and because Christ never changes, neither will I in the sense of my righteousness. Your salvation and mine depends only and entirely and exclusively on the obedience of one man. That's a secure salvation. Okay? You have as much chance of losing your salvation as Yeshua has of getting kicked out of the Trinity. Because you share in His righteousness. You are in union with Him. That's security, people. And that's, that's what we have. He says, keep them in your name which you have given me. Again, and we've seen this so many times, the one that Yeshua prays for, that the Father will keep, are those, He says, you've given me. We've seen this throughout the Gospel. This is a reference to the elect of God. Those chosen before the foundation of the world and given to Yeshua as a gift. See, here's Isaiah teaches this. The Father had chose out a group of people from eternity past <coughs> to give to His Son for the work of redemption that the Son was going to do. So when Christ died on the cross, He won the redemption of these people. They're His. It's a gift. We are a gift to God, or to Yeshua, for His redemptive work. Alright, he says that they may be one even as we are one. Their unity is the purpose of their being kept. Keep them, so they'll be one. They cannot be one as Yeshua and the Father are one unless they're kept. Now people, this is not talking about us getting along in the church. Okay? You know, when you all have to pick out new carpet, I don't want you all to be in agreement. You know, that's what that. No, this is not talking about that kind of unity, all right? This is not organizational unity. This is intrinsic, organic unity that stems from sharing the divine nature as a result of the new birth. This unity is compared to the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Look at, they may be one, how? Even as we are one. John 10.30, Yeshua said, I and the Father are one. He wants us to share that. And the only way we share that is through the new birth. We share the divine nature. Alright, verse 12, He says, While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Alright, while I was with them, I kept them in Your name. Now, the earliest manuscripts have with them, but a few early manuscripts and related later witnesses have with them in the world. So the prepositional phrase in the world doesn't really add much here because we're told that in verse 13. 
So it's not a big deal whether it's there or not there. It doesn't change a whole lot. Yeshua says, I have kept them in your name. I have guarded them. You know, Yeshua kept these disciples loyal to God. I think that's the idea of keeping here. He's keeping them loyal to the, to the Father. He had guarded them from external attacks while He's with them. You notice all through the Gospels when, when the attacks come, they come against Yeshua, not the disciples. All right, He kind of shields them. He kind of protects them. The word guarded here is from the Greek word phulaso, and it means to protect from outside threats. It's used in Luke 11 of a strong man guarding his house. It's used in Acts 28 of soldiers guarding Paul. We see this guarding in action in chapter 18. We'll get to this shortly here, but in Acts 18, you know, they're in the garden and the Romans come out to arrest him. You know, they're, they're going to take him back. And uh, so he asked them, he says, again, who do you seek? And they said, Yeshua of Nazareth. Now, when he said this previously, you know what happened? They all fell on the ground. You really want to mess with someone like that? Yeshua, I'm He. Boom! And they all just fall down. That happens twice. So, okay, He's got their attention. Now, I'm asking again, who do you want? Yeshua of Nazareth. And He says, I told you, I'm He. And then watch. So if you seek Me, let these men go. You got Me, don't mess with them. And I would say, whatever you say, sir, because we just fell down a couple times because of your word, so we're a little bit, you know, yes. All right? He protects them. And the imagery here is suggestive of the Good Shepherd imagery of chapter 10, especially verse 27 to 30. Yeshua is the Good Shepherd who protects his sheep. It's solely the job of the shepherd to take care of the sheep. Sheep are dumb. You see the correlation to us there? <laughs> and they have to be cared for. And the shepherd cares for them. The shepherd's job, he does that. He says, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Not one of whom? Well, not one of the ones that the Father had given him. None of the given has perished. None of them. Earlier Yeshua said in 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So in our text, Yeshua affirms that indeed none of them have perished. He has guarded, He has protected His disciples. Except the one who He says was destined to be lost. The literal translation is, except the son of perishing. Now, this Semitic expression in the literal Greek text is a play on the word to perish. Not one has perished except the son of perishing. That's how the Greek reads. So, the one who's supposed to perish, perishes. It's a reference to Judas, alright? That he, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. See, this indicates that some passage in the Tanakh predicted Judas' betrayal and defection. Now, the exact passage is not specified here, but in John 13, 18, he says it's Psalm 41, 9, which is explicitly quoted by Yeshua with reference to the traitor Judas. So let's look at it. Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is a Psalm of David. Who was David's adversary here? Anybody got any idea? I think he's talking about Ahithophel here. Okay? Does anybody remember how Ahithophel died? Only what? This is the only person in the, in the Tanakh that, that we know of that died this way. Ahithophel hung himself. He hung himself. Alright. And we know that Judas in the New Testament is his parallel. He also hung himself. 
So Ahithophel becomes an illustration or a type of Judas, a betrayer. It's interesting that the son of destruction carries the name of Yeshua's tribe. All right, the tribe of Judah. Now, the Hebrew name Yehuda means Yahweh's people. It's ironic that it was Yeshua's people who rejected him, but we're already told that in the book of John, right? Came to his own Jewish people, and his own received him not. So, Yahweh's people reject him, with the exception of the faithful remnant, the given. And within the apostles, there's both a true Judah and a false Judah. The true Judah who believed in the Messiah was the apostle Judas. We know him as Jude. You know, they didn't want to call him Judas because that's too much like the traitor Judas, all right? But so within the apostles, you have a fake Judah and a true Judah. And that's just a representative of he came to his own people. Judah rejected him. But there was the remnant who believed in him. All right, verse 13 says, But now I'm coming to you, coming to the Father, and these words I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. These things probably refers to the whole farewell discourse, starting with verse chapter 13 on. Again, Yeshua tells them he's going to the Father. It's hours away, the crucifixion. All right? He says that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, this echoes the earlier statement about the disciples possessing Yeshua's joy in 1511. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, Yeshua's joy, like that of the disciples, comes from abiding in the Father's love, which happens as we live in obedience to Him. We've talked about abiding in Christ, all right? Yeshua is praying that the disciples will be kept loyal to the Father, which would mean that they would abide in Him, they would share His joy. David put it this way. Love this Psalm, 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Listen, people, joy is the product of an intimate relationship with God produced by the Holy Spirit as we receive and obey the Word of God. When you're walking in obedience to the Father, when you're abiding in Christ, there's joy. I don't know anybody in the Scriptures we see who had more joy than the Apostle Paul. And it had nothing to do with good circumstances. Okay, he was beaten, shipwrecked, everything you could do to this guy, and this guy's full of joy. Whip him, stick him in the inner prison in Acts 16. What's he do? Let's sing. Let's sing. You know, and you know, what time did they sing? Midnight. Why is that? Because the psalm says, at midnight, I will praise you. See, and they just were biblical people, man. And at midnight, and they said, let's sing. Now, would that be us there? Oh, Lord, why? We'd be moaning, not singing. Why me, Lord? I try to serve you. I'm trying to be faithful. Why do you give me such? No, Paul's just praising God. Let's say, let's sing. You know that hymn? How great thou art? Yeah, I know that. Let's sing it. And can you imagine it? It says the prisoners heard them. That's right. Preach it. So, people, listen to me. Joy has nothing to do with circumstances. Nothing. And if you try to hang your joy in your circumstances, you're going to be a miserable person. They don't always go your way. 
But if your joy comes from an intimate relationship with Yahweh, that's unshakable. I don't care what your circumstances are. Yahweh is unchangeable. All right, verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I've given them your word. I think there's a double meaning here, since word means message, but it was also a title for Christ in John chapter 1. So Yeshua has conveyed the message of God to the disciples most powerfully by being that message Himself. He is the Word. He's given them the Word. He says, the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Now again, He returns to this theme of the world's hatred. we talked about this many times. The world hates them because they're not of the world, just as He's not of the world. He stressed this point to them over and over. Back in chapter 15, verse 18, He said, the world would hate them because it hated Him. He told them in verse 20, the world would persecute them. He told them in verse 23, they would be hated because the world hates Him. And they hate the Father. In chapter 16, He told them in verse 2, you're going to be put out of the synagogues. He says, you're going to be killed by people who think that in killing you, they're doing a service to God. He wanted them aware that the world's a dangerous place for the children of God. Now here's the irony, people. The people who bring to the world the most glorious and liberating message of grace are the most persecuted religious group in the world. Is that ironic? Why do they persecute us? Because we're bringing grace to the world? We're telling them of God's love? Of His grace to us? And that brings persecution? It is irony, but we see it. You know, Again, we can't base this on American culture because the rest of the world our brothers and sisters are greatly suffering. He says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now the world hates believers, and it's dangerous, but we need to be in it. Okay? The analogy of Matthew 5, 13, and 14, the disciples cannot be salt and light unless they're in the world. How do you be salt in the salt shaker? You've got to get out of there and get in the world. Christians are not to withdraw. They're not to isolate themselves from the world. The world is where we need to be. But know this. The very minute you tell the world that certain behavior is wrong, you will feel the fury. Okay? You will feel the fury. And that's our calling. This is what the Word says. We're not giving them our opinions. We're not giving them our prejudices. We're telling them this is what the book says. This is what God says. And as soon as you start doing that, you're going to be, be accused of intolerant and judgmental. All right? Get used to it. If you go into the world expecting to be popular, you're in for a rude awakening. You know? Now listen, if you go into the world and act like them and look like them, you'll blend in with them. There's no good, you're no good that way either. Salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing. Okay? You've got to be in the world, but be speaking to the world. All right? And I don't mean acting like an idiot or being rude or anything. I just mean sharing the Gospel. Telling people what the Word of God says. That's our calling. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Now, this part of Yeshua's prayer is something that I think most Christian groups today have missed. They've missed it through the centuries. Groups like the Essenes, right? They were the group responsible for the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls they physically withdrew themselves into the wilderness. They took themselves out of the world. 
They knew Jerusalem was corrupt, and it was, but they needed to be there to give some light and salt to the world. But they didn't. The monastics, in their order, they have withdrawn from the world to meditate and think over spiritual things. Well, that's wonderful, but it doesn't help the world at all, okay? Dionysius the Aragite devised a theme to accomplish separation from the world. All right, he built a platform on top of a stone column, and he would climb up there for extended periods of time to contemplate on top of the column. And he would drop down written meditations to his friends below and receive food and other things that he needed to survive on that platform. Well, in the 5th century, Simon the Stylite did the same thing, trying to escape worldliness by living, listen, for 36 years on a platform on top of a pillar, trying to get away from the world. And thousands flocked to hear him preach, and he had a good pulpit because he's way up there on the top of this pillar, all right, preaching to them. He spawned a movement. Other people were starting, hey, this is a good idea, let's get out of the world, let's get on top of a pillar somewhere. <laughs> that lasted over 500 years. Pillar sitters. Pillar dwellers. That's how they got out of the world. And, and there's always someone trying to get away, you know, from the world. Now today, maybe it's the Amish or some of the sects of the Mennonites. They're known, we're not going to be worldly, so we wear different clothing, and our lifestyle will separate us from the American culture. You know, many of them think it's worldly to own or drive a car. Now, some of them can drive cars but they can't have any something on them. Anyone know what it is? No chrome. If you've got an all-black car, somehow that slips not being worldly. You put chrome on a car, that car gets really worldly with chrome on it. So you can't do that, all right? They view buttons as being worldly. You can't have buttons on your clothing. So, you know, it's just happened. You know, some fundamentalists also seek to separate themselves from the world. And some of them not only separate from those who don't believe, who need the gospel, but they separated from those who are unwilling to separate from those who don't believe. So you got a secondary degree of separation there. I'm not, you associate with unbelievers, I'm not going to associate with you. People, we've got to associate with unbelievers. Okay? How will they hear without a preacher? How is that going to happen? That's what we're for. All right? He says, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now the word evil one here from the Greek word paneros, which is a word that could be neuter or masculine in gender. It may represent the neuter, which would mean that which is evil, or masculine, the evil one. But in almost every case in which this expression occurs, it's a reference to a personal masculine evil one. And that is most likely the meaning here. All right? And so I think the ESV got it right here. The evil one. Now, in view of the frequent use of the masculine in 1 John, same author, it seems much more probable that the masculine is to be understood here. Keep them from the evil one. Yeshua is praying for His disciples here to be protected from Satan. Now, Satan, the evil one, was the prince of this world. Yeshua will refer to Satan as the prince of this world three times in this Gospel and in 1 John. And Lazarus reminds us that the whole world is under the evil one. <clears throat> so, who or what is this evil one? Well, when it comes to spirit beings, such as Satan, devils, demons, unclean spirits, they're basically three positions 
within the church today. All right? Some don't believe in a personal devil or demons. To them, there's no such thing. They read about Satan and they think, well, that's some bad influence. That's not an actual person. It's not an actual being. Okay? These people strip the Bible of the supernatural. Okay? We're going to take these people out. Some believe that Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real and they're still active in the church today. Some believe that Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real beings, but they were all defeated and destroyed in A.D. 70 at the return of Christ. That's the position I hold. All right. Now notice what Paul wrote to believers in the transition period. Paul writes this to the Ephesians. He said that if we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So he's warning these people. You've got to be ready. Now, the word rulers here is from the Greek word arche. has a wide range of meanings. Authorities is exousia. It means power, ability, privilege. These titles are used for human and spiritual powers. But notice the other words used here. Cosmic powers. All right? This comes from the Greek word kosmokarator. This is the only use in the New Testament. Paul only uses it. But it's used in the Testament of Solomon, a pseudepigrapher work, of spiritual beings. In the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, it's a dictionary you should have. It's a good dictionary. I mean, it's, it's about this thick, I think, but it's, 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 an, amazing, it's an amazing work. All right. In there, Cosmocrator means the Lord of the world and ruler. And it occurs in pagan literature as an epithet for the gods. Rulers, heavenly bodies. Now, why would Paul use this word that's used only here in the Bible, but it's used in other literature for spirit beings if he didn't mean spirit beings? That's confusing, Paul. But no, Paul's not trying to confuse us. Paul goes on to say, the forces are spiritual. They're not human. He says, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. They're in heavenly places. They're in the spirit realm. The place where Yahweh dwells. Listen. Now, you've got to... And those of your visitors here, we've got to make this distinction here. All right, These first century people to, the, to whom this was written were living in the transition period. A period that went from Pentecost to AD 70. It was a 40-year period. Another exodus wandering of the children of Israel. All right, This time into the true heavenly place. All right, And so the Lord is you know, talking to them about what's happening in their environment. The first century, they had this battle. That's why the Lord prayed they'd be kept from evil. What about us? Are we still in this battle? Do we need protection from the evil one? Most people would say yes. I say no, because the spiritual battle was unique to the first century. And that battle with the spiritual enemies is over. Look at me at Matthew 24. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this, but Matthew 24 In the beginning, the disciples come to the Lord and they're overlooking the temple and they said, when will all all these things be destroyed? Talking about the temple. And so the Lord's going and explaining in Matthew 24 about the temple and its destruction. Listen, the temple was their world. That's where God dwelt. When the temple was destroyed, their world came to an end. The old covenant came to an end when the temple was destroyed. The Jews have not sacrificed since then. You know, anything they keep on doing has been greatly changed and adulterated since then. You know, it's not what the Jews practiced originally. All right. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, 
the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now the stars here, stars were a common use in the Hebrew and many other cultures for gods, false gods, all right? The powers of the heaven are the spiritual being. They're the cosmic powers, the cosmocurator, the spiritual forces of evil that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6. We know this is speaking of AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was destroyed just like he prophesied this would happen. It was wiped out. Look at Romans 16.20. All right, again, audience relevance. Who is Paul talking to here? Romans. When? First century. Okay, you've got to put yourself back in the, to the original audience. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. He's not talking to us. Okay? He's talking to first century Romans. The word used for crusher, suntribo in the Greek, it means to crush completely, to shatter. When is it that Satan is going to be crushed completely? He says soon. Because the end of the old covenant was not far away. And that was the crushing of it. When the Lord returned in judgment on Israel. Paul said here, the Roman Christians, that it's going to happen soon. We've got to learn to take him at his word. Because we read the word soon here and we say, well, it's soon to us. No. It was soon 2,000 years ago. How is it soon to you if it's 2,000 years? If, the, if it's still soon, guess what? The word soon has no meaning. It has no meaning. But you know what? Those time statements are everywhere in the Bible. Once your eyes are open to see them. Because the Lord said He was coming back soon. Soon. People say, well, He's not come back yet. I'm like, whoa. But you know, I take the Bible and I show him Timothy. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, I hope to send, no, he's in Ephesians, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. So I ask people, are you excited? Timothy's coming soon. And they're like, what? No, no. Well, I mean, Timothy's dead. Well, it says he's coming soon. Well, well, that's not to us. Oh, but the Lord's coming soon. That changes everything. Now soon means something else. We've got to be consistent, people. We've got to be consistent. It is my view that the Lord returned in A.D. 70, destroying Jerusalem and bringing in the new covenant. And all the things the book of Revelation talks about, the chapter 21 and 22, the new heavens and new earth, are the new covenant, spiritually brought into place. It's not a physical utopia. We live now with Christ. See, the promise of the new covenant was, I will dwell with them. So, God is dwelling with us now. We don't have to go to a temple. He's not behind a veil anymore. We dwell with Him because we're in the new covenant. That was to happen soon. If Satan is still around, here's the problem we have. we got a problem with inspiration. Because he said he would crush them soon. And you know what? That's a huge problem. Because if the Bible's not inspired, we're wasting our time. All of us. <clears throat> but I believe Satan's a devote, destroyed foe because I believe in inspiration. And God said he was going to destroy him. Now we, we, you and I, 21st century believers, are not fighting against powers, against world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That battle was fought and won by our Lord 2,000 years ago. The battle is over. Christ was victorious. Over and over the Lord says, I came to destroy the works of the devil. He did it. The gods who rebelled against Yahweh have been judged. Verse 16. He says, they're not of the world. Speaking of disciples, just as I'm not of the world. This is a repetition of the second half of verse 14. 
The only difference is the word order. All right? Again, we're not of the world. Now, okay. 17.7. How many are familiar with this verse? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is true. How many of you know that verse? You've quoted that verse? You know that verse? All right. Listen. Pay attention here. I'm afraid. I've used this verse, I've used this verse out of context my whole life. This is one of my favorite verses. And here's the problem with studying verse by verse. <laughs> it messes up your pet verses. Because you see them in context and all of a sudden things start to change. Okay? Because I'd always say, no, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. In other words, make them holy, God, and make them holy as they read the word of God. And I still think that's true. But that's not what this verse is saying. Okay? In context, all right, we usually think of sanctification as having to do with moral holiness, right? Becoming more Christ-like in our behavior. You're being sanctified. You're acting more like Christ, all right? Well, studying these verses in context, it becomes obvious that our Lord is not using the word here in that sense. I'm absolutely sure of that. You know how? Because Christ says in verse 19, I sanctify myself. Or did he need to get more holy? No. All right, did he need some kind of improvement in his life? More morally, practically? No. The Greek word used here for sanctify is hagiadzo. It's a term that's used in the Septuagint for something that was set apart for sacrifice. In classical Greek, the word that is used to sanctify is a term that's not used in the New Testament. But in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and the New Testament, we have a word that's almost entirely biblical in its force. In other words, hagiadzo, just, it's a biblical word. It's not used outside of it. It is almost synonymous with the dedication of an object for the purpose of sacrifice. Alright? So it has the old covenant sense of consecration of an object to the purpose of the will of God. So when the Lord prays that they would be sanctified, He's asking that they be set apart for a particular purpose. A purpose of God. And that is the mission that He's given to these original disciples. They had a calling to take the Gospel into all the world. In this context, it means to set these disciples apart from the world that they can accomplish the work that God has given them in the world. In John's Gospel, such sanctification is always for a mission. Set them apart. See, it always taken this verse to mean make us more holy in our daily life through the truth of the Word of God. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about practical holiness or the Bible. Now, I think that's still true. I think the more time you spend in the Bible, you will be set apart. But that's not what he's talking about here because guess what? When Yeshua said this, there was no Bible. The 66 books as we now know it. They had the Tanakh. That's the... Hebrew, old, we call the Old Testament. Again, I know I'm weird, but I don't like saying Old Testament. Because when I, guess what I do with my old computer? I don't use it. So when something's old, you think we don't need it anymore. We need the so-called Old Testament because it teaches us all about the new. Everything the New Testament writers came up with, they got it from the old. Okay? So it's not old for us. We got to, so I call it the Tanakh. That's what the Hebrews called it. They didn't, you know, the Hebrews never called it the Old Testament. <laughs> It was their Bible, it was the Tanakh, alright? So the truth here could be referring to what's known as the Bible, the Tanakh. Today, we 
we, we will say the truth and we mean the Word of God. That's contained in the Holy Scriptures. But then, he meant all that God had unfolded to them through his teaching and through the Tanakh, which he used over and over. The New Testament fulfillment is the person of Christ. It's his words. It's his person. It's his work. He says, your word is truth. The word that Yeshua gave them through his preaching and teaching in his life. That's the truth. Set them apart through all I've taught them. And what's interesting here is that Jewish tradition declared that God had consecrated or sanctified Israel, separating them from the rest of the world by giving them his law. Right? He took Israel and set them apart because he gave them his law. Well, here we have God consecrating the church by giving them his word, his son, setting the church apart. Verse 18 says, As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. He had sent them into the world with a mission. Similarly, the Father had sent the Son into the world with a mission. John 10.36 John 3.17 indicates that God sent the Son into the world in order that the world might be saved. Right? Well, Yeshua sends His disciples into the world for the same purpose though the salvation of the world will be accomplished by the proclamation of the saving work of Christ, not the work that the disciples do. All right, It's they're carrying that message of Christ to the world that will save the world. So Yeshua is setting them apart for the work that He has called them to do. They are, in a sense, being commissioned here. You're set apart. You disciples are going to carry this to the world. And guess what? The world's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to kill you. They're going to torture you. And guess what? They all kept on preaching. People say, oh, the resurrection was all a hoax. Really? So these people all went out and died for something they knew was fake. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Now, the words consecrate here in verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. Both these words are hagiadzo. So why translate them differently? That, I think that's confusing, you know? I mean, I know you're trying to help us ignorant people out here, you know, by telling us what the words mean, but if you're translating Hagiazo, translate it the same way both times. So we can at least see it's the same word. You know, that's why, listen people, we've got to use multiple translations, because no one is, none of the translations are perfect. And the two I recommend you've got to have is the Jewish New Testament and uh, Young's Literal. Young's literal, Young's living literal translation. <laughs> because they help us see the tenses, they help us understand. You know, translators are giving us, the translators say, I think it should be this way. And so they put it that way, you know, because they're prejudiced, they're, they have their own bias, you know, so that's why they did it. But Yeshua didn't mean that he intended to make himself more holy than he already was, since that'd be impossible. So when Yeshua said, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified, here's what he's saying. How did he set himself apart? I set myself apart. Remember what we said this word means? Sacrifice. I'm going to the cross is what he's saying. I'm setting myself apart. I'm going to the cross for sacrifice. That's the sense of the term in the Tanakh. I'm going to sacrifice. So he's setting himself apart for, to be sacrificed. That's what he's going to do here. Now, he says that they also may be sanctified. That 
is a hit-on-purpose clause with a perfect passive participle, which implies that the results have already occurred and continue in force. That they also, in other words, they've already been sanctified in the truth, but I'm praying for that because that's going to happen, and it has happened. They've been set apart. Through His sacrifice, the given will be given new life through the new birth. And then they will be set apart for a mission of taking the gospel to the world. That they also, because He was set apart and went to the cross, that's the only reason that they can be sanctified in the truth. Because He paid their sin debt. Now Yeshua is setting Himself apart to do the will of the Father. And that is to go to the cross on the disciples' behalf and on the behalf of their successors as well. Alright, believers, I believe that we also are to set ourselves apart to do the will of the Father. That's our calling. We are to be set apart. We're not here to you know, just see how much enjoyment we can get out of life, how much money we can make, how, how, much, you know, how many friends we can build, how much popularity. We, we're not here for that. We are here to do the will of the Father. And our prayer should continually be, may your will be done in my life that you will receive glory. That's our prayer. God, do your will in my life. That's all I need. That's all we all need. We want so many other things, but listen, the thing that's going to bring joy is walking in fellowship with the Father. And this is what it's all about, people. Just being set apart for Him. And that's what sanctify means, set apart. And in the, in the, whole, in the old cultic Hebrew system there, things plates were set apart. <laughs> okay, Dishes were set apart. In other words, this is for God's use. That's the idea. We're setting it apart for God's use. They're hagiadzo. They're holy. And people were to be holy. We're to be set apart for God's use. We are set apart. God has set us apart. But practically, you and I are here to do the will of the Father. We're to be part of the world because only as we're in the world can we affect the world. Next week, Yeshua prays for us. Those who would believe because of the word that they preach. That's us, right? We believe because they wrote the Word of God. We reread it. We believe it. So now He's going to pray for us. So next week, He prays for us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the opportunity we have to tear it apart, to digest it, to try to seek to understand what it means. And Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, that You'd give them the heart of a Berean. Father, I pray that no one would believe what I say because I say it but they would take what I say and study it, to dig, to search, to see if it's so. Give us the desire, Lord, to know Your truth. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen. I forgot to silence my phone. (laughs) For those of you uh, visitors here, those are questions coming in from people watching live. All right? All right, questions, comments on what we talked about this morning. Gary? Well, it's probably just Which says, because of the disobedience of one, many were made sinners. Shouldn't shouldn't it be all? Well, it should be all. All are, but it's all of that group. And I mean, he used he he switched Romans five. He switches back and forth between all and the many. Okay, oh, many times he does that. And yeah, it's a difficult argument. But those that belong to that group, and that was all. And yeah. 
It does? Really? I don't know if that's right or not. But Jack? Okay. I thought it was really cool how, hey, Timothy is coming back. <laughs> That's right. It, it just shows how people are too quick to believe and don't think about it. It's like thinking, or not thinking before you speak. <laughs> if you read, I'm pretty sure it's Revelation 1 3. Yeah. Right when you read that, it already proves futurism wrong. Because what's it say? It says, um, God is coming soon at the end. Soon. The things which must shortly come to pass. The book of Revelation starts with two time statements. It ends with six time statements, and all of them are soon. But we think, this is way in the future. Wait a minute. Who was it written to? Who's that? Who was the book of Revelation written to? The seven churches in Asia Minor. And he names them. In the first century. So if he told them this stuff's happening soon, and it hasn't happened yet, we got problems. All right, I got a comment from Bob Krushank from Ohio. He says, regarding your comments on Ephesians 6, 12, I often wonder how people explain the non-existence of the false gods today if they believe these gods have not yet been defeated. For example, who worships Baal or Baal anymore? These false deities are history, literally and figuratively. Yes, they are, you know, but see, most people don't believe there are other gods. You know, there was just Yahweh, and, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of gods in the Bible, and God destroyed them all because He created them, because He is the sovereign creator of all things. Jesus crushing Satan, so what is the explanation, proper explanation for why there's so much evil in the world these days, etc., etc.? Okay, good question. You know, people say, you know, if, um, you know, if Satan's gone, why is the world so bad? James 1 tells us. Every man, James says, is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Men, God says, from the imaginations of his heart are evil continually. We're just, we're evil people. You know, I, listen to me. I know that better than anybody. My wife will give testimony to this, okay? I mean, I, I live with me and I think, you know, I love God. I love the Word of God. I spend hours and hours studying, and yet these evil inclinations are always there with me. Because my heart is evil, even though I've been redeemed. Man just wants to, ooh, it seems like he always wants to go away from God. It's just an evilness in him, you know. It's, I don't know, it's, you know, listen, you know, I've been joking about this lately, but I think it's, it's serious. You know, we talk about, you know, one of men's bigger problem is lust, okay? And, you know, men deal with this all constantly, and I think, you know, we're kind of in trouble because, listen, lust is such a powerful force that a group of angels left heaven and came down for women on the earth. And I'm like, uh-oh. If the angels for, who were in the presence of God left to come down here, we understand the power of this, people. And this is why we need to walk, we need to abide in Christ. As long as you're in the Word, walking with Christ, staying in fellowship, it keeps you out of trouble. David? A uh, question about verse 15. So the majority of the text um, points towards the evil one. Right. My question is, because the word translated from the evil one is the Greek word ek which is a, uh, it's a primary preposition denoting source. Right. So, it seems like it would 
me it made more sense using that word for it to be keep them out of the evil than well the thing is I'm going by usage and if you take the use go to you go to first John and look at all the usage there and just in general you know that that's definitely translated as masculine more often it could go either way like I said you know it's depending how you you know how you view that but I think it's masculine. I think he's talking about an evil, the, the, the evil one, the Paneros one in that text. But it can go either way. Because uh, Lazarus used that word, you know, the, right. the source of something. Out of. Yeah. Right, out of, you know, like faith, you know, same word using the faith, you know, right. from God, it's out of God, he's the source of our faith. Yes. Um, going back to uh, John, uh, I believe this is 12. No, yes, 12. At the end, uh, and I'm reading from the complete Jewish Bible here. Okay, cool. Um, I kept watch over them, and none of them were destroyed except the one meant for destruction, so that the Tanakh, in this case, uh, they use instead of scripture, might be fulfilled. And that takes me back to Matthew. Uh, chapter 17, where Jesus is addressing the issue of uh, his being here, and he says, I don't, don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to complete. And I believe the King James Version says to fulfill. Fulfill, right. Yes, and uh, so in this case, uh, the, the, the discussion was uh, earlier brought about scripture. I, I believe the scripture is the Tanakh in general, the purpose that one has to pay and uh, someone has to die for their sins. And in this case, if you're not following Christ for everlasting life, this one has to die for everlasting destruction in that one. Well, that's the thing. The Tanakh was so clear about the coming of Christ. You know, he told the Jews, you search the scriptures to find eternal life. They speak of me. Oh, Tanakh is about Christ. He's the Lamb of God, you know, that takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, they read that, the suffering servant, and they miss the whole thing. You know, I mean, they just, they miss it all because, like I said, all the Hebrew feast days pointed to Christ. They practiced the feast days and they missed the Christ. Because Isaiah said they were blinded. God had blinded their eyes, you know, lest they should believe. John? I think that the enemy of the gospel today is self-effort, whether it be in the church or out of the church, because self-effort puts man in fear. Mm-hmm. You can do it, right? Just try harder. Yeah. And um, but the Christian knows that he can't do it, and he relies on Christ. I think that's the difference between the gospel and the the way the world sees things. Right, people want to be involved in their salvation. They want to do something. They want to earn it. You know, it's which is funny in our society because most people don't want to earn anything in our society. You know, they want the government to take care of them. You know, they don't want to earn it. So maybe later the gospel will, you know, have. Man, that's loud. <clears throat> okay. Yes. That reminds me of the the last verse in the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own sight. Well, that's over and over. And that's the problem, you know. That, that was the whole problem. People did what they thought was right. What we think is right is usually not right, okay? 
And that's why, that's why we're so thankful that we have the Word of God. We can over... You know, this is not something that you read once and put down, put back on the shelf. This is something you immerse yourself in. You know, you read it until it comes out. You know, people poke you in the middle of the night and you wake up saying Bible verses, okay? <laughs> part of you, all right? I mean, it should be that way. You know, it really should be. It should be so much part of you. Because something's taken up all your time and affection. It should be the Word of God. John? In order to say that you think you're right or you think you're wrong or you think he's right or you think he's wrong is, a, is an old covenant mindset. Old covenant mindset. Well, if you're basing it on the Scripture, though, if you're saying, I, well, of course, that, that, you know, men will always have disagreements about the Bible. We read the same Bible. We come up with different views. You know, our job is to just search it. You know, and search out other opinions and not reject anyone, but look and see if the Scripture says it. That's why I tell you over and over, don't believe me. Don't believe what I'm telling you. Until you search it out yourself, because you're never going to get before God and say, well, David said, I don't care what David said, what did you do with the Word of God? You okay? What did you do with it? You know, you, you should have checked up on Him. Okay? And that's what we're called to do. We're called to, that's why we're Bereans. The Bereans searched the Scripture daily to see if those things were so. That you went through the Tanakh to find out, is it true, is it right? All right. Okay, a little bit longer than I planned, but you know, we had fun. So let's, uh, I'm going to close in prayer. Um, thanks for being here. Real, really, you guys that visited, appreciate you guys being here. Love having visitors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the time we could come and just be set apart for a while in your word, lifting our praise to you, realizing who you are. Lord, thank you for your word. We are so rich, so blessed to have it. Father, may we appreciate it. May we be grateful that you've given it to us, that we immerse ourselves in it. Lord, thank you for your love for us. I pray we'd be salt and light this week. We would truly, Lord, be in the world you've created, that we may call them to righteousness in you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.